What would you do if you knew you couldn't fail? If you had all the money, all the time, all the knowledge, all the resources that you needed? What would you do with your life if you simply knew that anything was possible for you? My name is Christina Carlson, founder of Global Swedish Design and stationery brand Kiki K, and author of the book Your Dream Life Starts Here. And I love exploring these sorts of questions to inspire people to dream. Before I started Kiki K, I had a dream that I could bring Swedish design to the world to create beautiful products that bring sparks of joy into the everyday lives of millions. Now that I have achieved that dream, I want to help you dream big. I want to create a global movement to inspire 101 million dreamers to transform their lives and transform the world in return. Each episode, I'll be talking to some of the world's most inspiring people, exploring the powerful impact that dreaming has had on their lives. We'll be diving deep into the power of dreaming with real insights and ideas that you can use immediately to build a dream life of your own, whatever that means for you. Hi there, and welcome back to another episode. I had the pleasure of meeting the wonderful Elise Bailview last week, and I was so inspired. I just had to invite her onto this podcast right away. Author of the incredible book, The Happiness Plan, Elise is also a coach, meditation teacher, and a social entrepreneur who, after training as a doctor and psychiatrist, left the hospital wards to pursue a deeper calling. In 2012, she founded Mindful in May, a global mindfulness, meditation, and fundraising organization that has taught thousands of people from around the world the skills of mindfulness, as well as raised funds to bring clean, safe drinking water to developing countries. Wow. Elise always wanted to help people and make a difference, and her shift into mindfulness was driven by a scientific fascination with the mind and how we can use it to improve our overall wellness. There are so many wonderful, inspiring moments throughout this episode where you will hear all about Elise's journey, as well as the importance of community in all that we do, the science behind meditation, why we should meditate, and the benefits it can bring to your life, how mindfulness may assist in reducing anxiety and depression, tips on meditation, especially if you have never meditated before, the benefits of kindness, simple ways to incorporate more gratitude into your life, that it's okay to give yourself a break when you are feeling overwhelmed, and so much more. I can't wait for you to hear this episode, so let's get right into it. Hi there, and welcome to my podcast, Elise. Thank you so much for having me. It was such a delight to get to meet you. I know. I was so excited driving to, first of all, a in real life person event and then uh, to meet you because you were on my, I have a list of over 100 people I want to meet in my lifetime and you were on that list. So very, very exciting. So I ticked off one of my dreams this weekend. <laughs> I think the feeling was mutual. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. We have so much to talk about today and I'm super excited about this episode. But before we jump in, I ask the same question to all my guests and that is, when you were a child, did you have a dream of something you wanted to do or become as you were growing up? I love that question. And 
funnily enough, one of the dreams I had, which didn't eventuate, but that's okay because I, I, I evolved other dreams, was that I wanted to be a jazz pianist that played live gigs in New York. Wow. <laughs> and I, I was playing music in my early childhood, but I didn't quite get that far. However, I did make it to New York on multiple occasions, but it ended up being in the film industry, in the in the realm of documentary film. But that's like another part of my life. I actually read about that or heard about that when I did some research for this episode. And we might talk about that another time, but that's <laughs> fascinating. And what a great dream. But, you know, there is still, of course, time to make that dream happen if you if you wish. It is true. And often I think that, you know, to, to be honest, the way things have turned out, I wouldn't have imagined it in my wildest dreams. So it's interesting how that works. You have one dream, but then life kind of ends up going in different directions. Yeah, absolutely. And you never know how it turns again. So you never know if we'll all be at a uh, gig to watch you play uh, in New York. And uh, one of my dreams is to open a Kiki K store in New York City. I, I have this love for New York City. Uh, maybe we can do that at the same time. You can come and play <laughs> at the opening. I love it. I love it. <laughs> okay. So before we dive into all the things talking about mindful in May and mindfulness and meditation, I would love to hear a little bit about your story. I loved hearing you about your story over the weekend and obviously having read your book because you started as a doctor and then started your own business and uh, and I meet so many people who are doing it this way. And it's it's a fascinating because I did I started my business very early and I absolutely love meeting people who thought they were on the right path and then changed their mind. So I'd love to hear a little bit about your story and then we'll dive in more to your new venture. So I think I was someone who was always asking the big questions in life. What's the meaning of life? What is my role here? How can I make a difference? So I was very driven by making a difference and making my life really count. And that led me to a career in medicine and specifically into specialising in psychiatry. And I, I guess I was just always really fascinated with the mind and what we could do to harness the mind's full potential. And so as I moved through my career in psychiatry, you know, I was learning some incredible things and I was having some really I mean, at times confronting, but also really worthwhile experiences. But at some point I just became somewhat disillusioned because I just felt that I somehow wasn't fulfilling my calling in summary. You know, that's the easiest way to say it. And I was somehow misaligned. It wasn't truly fulfilling my deepest values and desires, even though I knew that I really wanted to make a difference and work with people through the mind in some way. So I ended up sort of almost starting to lead a double life. And I I got very into meditation. That was already happening in the background because my mum was quite big into meditation. So I had exposure to that from quite a young age. But it wasn't until kind of, yeah, I was more stressed in life and had more demands that I turned to meditation and started getting really interested going on silent meditation retreats and becoming really fascinated. And it turned out that that provided me with this kind of window into something that I was yearning for, which was to really study the mind and understand what we can do to optimize our minds and to really flourish. And the real aha moment for me, the real turning point where I knew, oh, this is the direction I'm going is when I was at a conference and I got to hear um, a couple of the leading scientists in the field of this new science that was emerging called contemplative neuroscience, which is around looking at the brain 
in meditation. And this man, Richie Davidson, put up a, some brain images and he showed us how the brain had changed through two months of regular meditation for, for this particular study. And then there were lots of other studies that he put up. One was around how meditation had improved people's immune systems. And I was absolutely fascinated. I mean, most of this science is now very mainstream and most people know it actually who are who are at all interested in this field but at the time it was really quite groundbreaking and for me that was really exciting because bringing coming from a place of being quite scientific and valuing science and and data and research and also practicing meditation and seeing the benefits that were already happening in my life these two things intersected and then that was it. I kind of, things opened up for me. I sat in meditation literally, I don't know, a few months later, and I was just at the end of my psychiatry career of training and exams, um, gotten through all of that. And I just had this idea that came up in meditation, which was mindful in May. It literally was one of those things you hear about, which I always thought were a bit, you know, exaggerated where people say they just had this insight or this idea. To me, that always sounded very fantastical, but it actually did happen to me. And then I went forward and I started creating this passion project that I had no idea would turn into a global movement years down the track and lead to me actually leaving my career to run it. It's fascinating. I often talk about when I come up with my product ideas and new ideas for the business, it never comes me sitting at the desk and having a specific schedule for being creative. It always comes when I'm out in nature or meditation. or And even this morning I meditated for like an hour because I've been doing um, – and I can talk a little bit about this later, but I've been doing this 66 days of specific meditation by Dr. Joe Dispenza. And uh, I just had so many insights. And sometimes you you feel that it takes, it doesn't happen every day, of course. So then you think, you know, is this really making a difference? And then all of a sudden today, I just had so many insights and so many ideas. And it's absolutely fascinating. And I, I always encourage people to really get out of the everyday stuff to meditate and be in nature and silent retreats and all those kind of things that is a little bit out of um, our comfort zone perhaps if you're not used to it and then um, all the ideas will start coming to you. It's just absolutely fascinating. Mm, absolutely. And I, I think that for so many of us our lives are so squashed and there's really just no space and so that's part of the problem that ideas need space to connect and, and come to life and so I think just, I mean, I don't think it's the only reason to meditate, but I think that it certainly offers this space for our minds to just allow all these different connections to happen that maybe wouldn't otherwise. Yeah, absolutely. So after meeting you this weekend and hearing all about Mindful in May, and obviously May is coming up, I was just so first inspired of all the work that you're doing, not just because what it benefits everyone who is actually attending it, but all the amazing things you're doing to support others in need. And I'm doing something very similar with Dr. Tara Trent in Africa. So it was very, really resonated with me. But tell us, there might be some people who never heard about Mindful in May. Yeah. So look, Mindful in May is a global annual online mindfulness meditation fundraising campaign. And it really aims, it's targeted at people who are either completely new to meditation and really need everything from the beginning, you know, the guided meditations, the science, 
and really to have a, a hand holding them through the month to ultimately get them to make meditation a habit. But it's also for people that are more experienced that need a reboot because we all know even being regular meditators that it's really easy to fall off track. And so we have lots of people always coming back to do it each year. And Mindful May really brings together the world's leading experts in the field of meditation and the brain and relationships. And I offer these kind of every second day you get an an interview that really distills the work of this person and offers you sort of actionable, doable practices that you can bring into everyday life. And in, in, in addition to that, you get a daily guided meditation from different guest experts and um, yeah, teaching on how to overcome the common obstacles that come up inevitably when you're starting or continuing a meditation practice. And I think the key thing that really distinguishes Mindful May from so many of the other amazing things that are out there, and there really are so many resources, is that A, it is a live event that it's kind of happening once a year and thousands of people around the world do it together at the same time. And it's also for something that is bigger than yourself. And so there is this real energy about it that people talk about that really carries them through the month. And, uh, and I think that's really unique. And also there's kind of an interactive opportunity where I'm inside the online community and you really get this opportunity to ask your questions and, and have things answered rather than just using an app by yourself. The other thing is that, I don't know, most people, many people I ask, they, they say, oh, yeah, I've got that app I downloaded, it's good. The problem is I, I have trouble using it regularly. And I think one of the things I've learned is community is one of the most important things for us as humans. We are wired to connect. And so if we harness that tendency to want to connect and put ourselves in a community that are doing the same thing that we want to be doing, that share our vision and our values, that amplifies our efforts by thousands fold. And um, that's what I've found is really the key to why Mindful May I think is so resonant and, and powerful for so many people. So I'm a meditator and I did a course many, many years ago and that's when things really started to happening for me. I, it wasn't until I really did like a proper course and actually practiced twice a day that it then became part of my daily life. But I know some people are really struggling with meditating on a daily basis. So, But before we go into how people can do that, can you please tell us why we should meditate and the fascinating science behind it? Yeah, so I think why we should meditate. I think that's a really important question because there's so many things that we can do every day that it's really important that you have a clear motivation and and reason of why this is important to you. And that might be different for so many different people. And for some people, it's because they've just reached this point of stress and suffering in their lives and they just need to change things. For other people, it's that they are working at really high levels and they are constantly trying to improve the way they do things and they want to optimize the way their brains work. And and so that's how they come to it. But I think just simply turning to the science is a really powerful window into the why uh, for people, particularly those that are kind of a little bit on the fence and not sure about it and think that, oh, I've heard meditation is really good, but, you know, I don't know if it would work for me. I can't stop thinking. That's one of the big myths, you know, therefore I'm not going to be very good at meditation. But I think the science was what completely captured my heart and soul and and drove me forward around this. So there's thousands of research studies. Some of the ones that I think stood out to me were 
again, citing Richie Davidson, who ended up being part of the program a number of years ago. So he did a really interesting study, which looked at how meditation can actually change your gene expression. So we know that genes are not fixed. The volume on them turns up or down, depending on the lifestyle choices that we're making for many of the genes. And so there's a gene that codes for inflammation in the body. And we know that inflammation is really bad and it contributes to various chronic health conditions like autoimmune diseases, diabetes, like so many different things. So in his study, he found that a day of mindfulness practice was actually enough to change the gene expression, particularly reducing inflammation in the body. And I thought that was just extraordinary because when you think about it, it's a practice that you're doing with your mind. And so the fact that this can ripple down and actually have an impact on your genetic expression to me was absolutely mind-blowing. And it speaks to the way that meditation really taps into that mind-body connection and really has echoes, beneficial echoes throughout the whole body. That was one research study that really stood out. I think another one, because I came from the field of psychiatry and, you know, I was working with clients that were suffering anything from, you know, schizophrenia to depression, anxiety, but anxiety is such a common issue in our society right now. And there was another study, fascinating, that looked at people with anxiety disorders and they put them under brain scanners and they saw that the size of their amygdala, which is in simplistic terms kind of the fear centre of the brain, these people had very large amygdala, so a larger volume, which meant, you know, tendency to be more worried. And after um, a number of months practising mindfulness, they actually put them in the brain scanner again and saw that their amygdala had reduced in volume, uh, which suggests that, you know, there's there's less activation of, of that worry centre. And there's been lots of um, meta-analyses, which are really high-quality research around mental health and mindfulness that have showed uh, that mindfulness can significantly reduce the symptoms of anxiety. And also in the field of depression, which I think is fascinating, it actually has been shown in some studies to be more effective than antidepressants in keeping people who've had multiple episodes of depression well. That is clearly not a statement to come off your antidepressants, just, you know, have to say that. But I think the point is that there is rigorous science showing that this practice is a really, really powerful technique to learn for your mental health and and your physical well-being. Yeah, I absolutely love that. And I love that you, I think you stated over the weekend or in your book that you are so interested to help people thriving, not just surviving. And I think that it's, you know, life is so short, so we definitely want to do whatever we can to thrive. Yeah, absolutely. And I think for many of us, and I'm sure most of the listeners can relate to the idea and and own the idea that we actually, our minds can create so much added suffering and stress in our lives. Like there's already enough challenge out there that we have no control over. And so mindfulness is really a vehicle to greater resilience as well. It's really this capacity to manage the mind when it's under stress and, and, and not add to the suffering that already comes inevitably when we are human beings living in this uncertain world. So give us some advice for people who say that they are struggling to meditate for those people who are really, you know, have an active mind and, you know, busy lives, etc. So I think, well, one of the reasons people say that to me, and I get lots of emails every day from people doing the various programs with questions around this, but one of the main reasons that comes up is that 
they actually have a misunderstanding about what meditation is. So in sort of pop culture, it's seen that meditation is something that it's about blissing out and being calm and and getting rid of the thoughts. And it's not the case really. I mean, becoming calm is a byproduct certainly, but it's not really the purpose. The purpose is kind of greater awareness. And so I like to say that mindfulness meditation isn't about creating a particular state it's actually the practice of becoming aware of whatever state is present. And through developing this awareness, this quality of awareness comes into our everyday life so that we're much more able to manage our emotions in everyday life and manage our relationships, be more patient with our kids, notice when we're feeling overwhelmed and deal with it more effectively, notice when we're distracted at work and you know readjust so that we, we come back to focus and we're more efficient. So for those people that you know, are having trouble, number one is to know that it's not about stopping thoughts. That's not the practice. You know, It's really about training the attention to be present and come back over and over again. And I like to actually say to people that when you're meditating and perhaps, you know, you're choosing something to focus on. So it's traditionally very commonly the breath or a mantra. When you notice that your mind's gone crazy and it's taken you off into thinking, when you bring the mind back, that is actually the art and the growth. That's like doing a mental dumbbell lift. And so in fact, many people that start meditation actually feel that their mind is crazier than ever. And that's only because you're actually starting to become aware of what what is actually present already. So that's one point. The second point is that obviously the more you meditate, the bigger the benefits, similar to physical exercise. However, I've designed Mindful May in particular to really meet the needs of people that are just overwhelmed and really don't feel that they have the time uh, and really to start smaller and then build the habit. Because for some people, yes, like, like you mentioned when you started, it was the 20 minutes twice a day that really gave you that boost and that sort of motivation and the, and the benefits. But for many people that might not be available to them, or even it might be, but they, they don't think that they can do that. So my invitation through the program I run is 10 minutes a day, because it's kind of hard to come up with an excuse that you don't have 10 minutes in a day. Everyone has 10 minutes, you know, so you start with that and then build it up. So I would say, you know, to other people, perhaps you're aiming too high and you need to just start smaller and build up the habit. We had an expert in Mindful May, BJ Fogg, who I'm sure you've read his books. He's incredible. Um, the habit formation guy. And, um, you know, I loved his analogy of the tooth flossing. And he says, if you want to start making tooth flossing a habit, just floss one tooth to begin with. And and I'm really a, a big fan of, of his work. I believe it really works, you know, to start small, create tiny habits and build on them. I couldn't agree more. And I'm all about habits. And, and I think if we are going to live our dream lives, we definitely need to uh, add some habits like meditation and mindfulness to make sure that we can do all the things that we want to do in our lifetime. So that was great for getting that those tips. Thank you. So if people are listening to this podcast after May, you have written a great book, The Happiness Plan, a one-month mindfulness guide to reduce stress, improve well-being and transform your life. So tell us a little bit about that because that's kind of like a mindful in May program that you can do anytime. <laughs> well, exactly. And that's really how it came about because I had lots of people that would kind of miss mindful in May and then be really annoyed and think, oh, well, what else can I do? You know, what are you offering? So it was an opportunity that came up to kind of 
you know, in some ways create a mindful in May for all months. It's different because it's not interactive and you obviously don't get a lot of the different resources that you get through the online program of Mindful in May. But, um, yeah, I think it's a really accessible book that's jam-packed with kind of the science that inspired me, but I make it really accessible to people that are not sciencey and also offer sort of daily mindfulness practices that you can integrate in your life because, yeah, mindfulness, it's not just about doing, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40 minutes of meditation and then that's it. It's really, I think I said it at the event that, that we were both at, it's it's making your life a meditation. And so it's really how do you incorporate all these different practices that so that it's not like you're adding something else onto your to-do list, but you're, you're just moving through life with greater intention and attention and, and presence. I think the 10-minute thing is is really key, you know, because – I really want to make it doable for busy people. And then naturally when you actually do the 10 minutes, then you find you just want to do more. And I, f- I forgot to mention, but through Mindfully May, we actually did some research with Monash University looking at how much meditation do you need to do to get the benefits? Cause that was a question that I got a lot. And a lot of the science out there was around 30 to 40 minutes. They were studying programs that were 30 to 40 minutes. So we did a preliminary study and we found over the month of May through the program that 10 minutes a day was actually enough to reveal measurable benefits for people, particularly around managing stress. We used a flourishing scale and we found that the points on flourishing were increased and also people managing their emotions. That's a big one. You know, I think emotions are what drive so much of our life and what determines how we feel every day. And, you know, where do we learn how to manage our emotions? Not at Well, now maybe at school, but previously not at school, not at uni. We spend our whole careers studying for a job uh, when our emotions are so important and no one's really helping us. So I really see that mindfulness is a vehicle to greater emotional intelligence, which is that ability to, to manage your emotions. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And I think the 10 minutes, even if you only get to do 10 minutes a day, it has such a flow on effect for the rest of the day. And that's why I think it's uh, meditating in the morning, just start your day in the best possible way. So um, I think it's just not that 10 minutes. It's just kind of that flow on effect on your life is, is so powerful. Yeah. Can you share, over the weekend, you shared a great technique called STOP. Because I think that's a great way if people want to start practicing something straight away before they get into your program. Yeah, sure. So this is just a really simple mindfulness practice that you can do at any moment of the day. And it sounds really simple, like almost not worth doing, but I really challenge the listeners to try it out, you know, tomorrow. And so STOP is an acronym and it's really this reminder to literally stop in the day. So S stands for stop. T stands for take some mindful breaths. So it might be that you count three mindful breaths. And a mindful breath is just simply bringing your mind and body together, feeling the body in the breath, and at the end of the exhalation, just counting one and then two, three. You can even do, you know, three to five. And just feeling the breath in the body. And then O is observe. So it's observing what's going on in the body and what's going on in the mind. So it's literally like scanning through the body, noticing if you're holding any tension, which usually when you actually do this practice, you discover you are. So actively releasing that and just letting it go and also observing what's going on in the mind. And I often add a sort of question like what what is called for in this moment? What do I need in this moment? And it might be that you stop in the middle of work and you realize you're completely distracted. So what do I need? I need to get back into focus or I gave the example when I was working in emergency departments, it was really true and quite funny that 
I set my alarm. So I, I advise people to set their alarm and put stop kind of alarms through the day every hour or so. And when I was working as a doctor in emergency, I would do this on my 24 hour shifts and the stop would come up and I'd check in and I'd realize, Oh my God, I need to go to the toilet. I'm so thirsty. You know, I just have to actually stop and eat something. I haven't stopped for, you know, five hours. So, and the point here is that it's just that, you know, mindfulness, the word in, in the ancient scriptures and, and the language actually means to remember um, it's defined as either to remember or to familiarize. So to remember, what is it? It's actually to remember, to be mindful, you know, to remember where you are, what's going on in this present moment. And we're just not very good at stopping and sort of gathering our attention into this moment. And so when you do this mindful stop practice throughout the day, what you're actually doing is you're giving yourself an opportunity to kind of recalibrate and get back on track both mentally and physically and so what you find is that the accumulated stress of the day is is extremely reduced because you're kind of redirecting yourself and getting yourself back on path by putting in these intentional pauses and stops in your day especially for those people who are multitasking people. And I could be part of that for sure. Yeah, so can I, (laughs) even though I've been doing this and teaching this. I don't think it it actually stops multitasking, but it actually what it does is make you a lot more aware of when you're in it so that you can actually get out of it. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So what do we do then when we realize here we are again, you know, and I, and I see, and I, I'm absolutely guilty of it myself, but I also see a lot of people, uh, especially now with mobile phones where we're sitting on something and then the phone comes in and we kind of feel we're definitely addicted to our devices. So what can we do to kind of really focus? I, I know you talk in the book about the Pomodoro. I don't know if I say that right. Yeah. The Pomodoro technique. Yeah. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about how we can reduce our multitasking in life. So, you know, as I say, I think the more you practice this kind of mindfulness meditation, the more that your awareness gets strengthened. And what I mean by awareness is just your ability to know what you're doing from moment to moment. And when that's activated, then you're actually just much more present to life. So you, as I said, you're catching yourself in the multitasking or for example, for those that most of the population that is addicted to technology and social media, you know, it might be that you're then able to catch yourself at nighttime when you're on your phone, scrolling numblessly, you know, on social media and you, you, you light up, your awareness lights up, you're like, oh, hang on a sec, what am I doing here? Uh, do I really want to be doing this? Is this actually aligned with what I most value? No. And so it's like it acts as this kind of earth, you know, this, this kind of fuse where it gets you out of that tendency of multitasking. So that's one thing. I think the other thing is really scheduling time in your week to, to review you know, how things are going and, and, and what you would like to change or not and actually using environmental design to help in an intentional way. And that's kind of mindful living, you know, like really looking at, you know, when I go to sleep, where do I want my phone? Uh, when I'm working, you know, am I turning my phone off? What, t- what techniques or practices can I implement when I am working to, to kind of stay focused? And that was the thing that I described in the book, the Pomodoro technique, but also just this mindful working where you put this sheet of paper next to you and you set, you know, 30 minutes, I'm going to focus. And if things come to mind, you just write them down rather than being taken off into other, you know, silos and, and tangents. So those kind of things. But I think when you know the science of multitasking, which is a, that, 
we know it just isn't actually effective. <laughs> it just isn't effective and there's lots of research around that. And B, that it actually increases your release of cortisol. So you're actually creating greater stress in your body. Sometimes, you know, that can help knowing that the science, even though you feel like you're being more effective, you're actually not. So that can help kind of be a motivator as well. I get scared when I read all that research because I have definitely done a lot of multitasking in my life, but I'm definitely more aware of it and reading what it does to your brain as well is, is yeah, I just, yeah, definitely want to reduce that. <laughs> yeah, there was there was two, two research studies around this topic. I can't remember who did them, but they were pretty funny. I mean, one of them showed that the amount of multitasking um, across a week kind of in an off energy in an office loses about eight hours per week. And the other one was that multitasking, because every time you multitask and you shift your attention, there's a time in which it takes for you to focus back on the other activity. Um, yeah. So that was the loss of eight hours. And then the other one was that, <laughs> that it was the equivalent of something about marijuana smoking and the mistakes you're actually going to make through multitasking was equivalent, but yeah. The other thing that we are focusing at Kiki K at the moment is kindness. And uh, I love how you have kindness as part of your book, but I love to talk a little bit about how we can be kinder to ourselves because I think we are our worst critics and um, and I think being mindful and practice meditation definitely helps being kinder to ourselves. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, so there's, again, so much science around this, particularly and specifically around the area of a type of meditation called loving kindness meditation, which sounds a bit woo-woo. And I have to admit, when I was introduced to it, I was a little bit um, aversive. But basically, this is this is a meditation practice whereby you are using your imagination and you're generating good feelings towards yourself and then you're bringing to mind people in your life both close to you and then more distant and kind of sending them an intention of, of may you be well, may you be happy. Uh, I write a lot about it in my book. It's hard to kind of go into the details of it just in this conversation. But what I want to say about it is that in the ancient traditions, they believed, and now science is supporting it, that we can actually generate feelings within ourselves, generate states of being that can be really supportive for our well-being and for the well-being of others because it actually makes us more generous and more pro-social, they call it. And so this particular loving-kindness practice, they've studied it and they've found that it literally this practice really improves literally the beating of our heart, like through the nervous system. It's it's shown to increase vagal tone and and improve our heart rate variability, which is a kind of a sign of cardiovascular health. And that comes from the work of Barbara Fredrickson, who was part of Mindful May a number of years ago. And so, yeah, it's just fascinating that, I mean, you were talking about kindness and and I think it's just really interesting to me that doing these practices which are about kindness both to ourselves and to others is good for us on a physical level. And I think part of being kind to ourselves is to practice more gratitude. And you have that as part of your book as well and part of your program. So talk a little bit about how we can practice more gratitude in our lives. Yeah. So again, I love the science and there's a lot of science around gratitude. And there was a really interesting study. I mean, I was saying to you that I love your gratitude journals. I've had them and I've used them and I love looking back on them, you know, uh, they're just, and, and we were talking about how nice it is to actually 
have something that is precious, that it's a really beautiful kind of thing that you can respect and honour and, and, and have that as a ritual. So how do you do it? Um, you're the expert on that, I would say, <laughs> with all of the, all that you do. But, yeah, I mean, it can be anything from, you know, noting things down in written form. We have a really nice practice in our family on Friday night, Shabbat, family dinner. I have my meditation bell and my daughter rings the bell and then we all listen to when the bell goes away and then we all go around the table and share something that we're grateful for. And, yeah, she loves that. She loves the sort of... The, the novelty of being able to ring the meditation bell. Um, but I think, yeah, do again, doing gratitude in a way that's communal is really nice because it's a way to remember to do it. And I think that the study I was going to talk about was, yeah, just that there's been lots of work around letter writing and, and writing letters. Um, I think this was done at Stanford around recording what you're grateful for or even writing a letter to someone who you feel grateful for, even if you didn't send it, there was evidence, you know, that it boosted your mood. So there's lots of science around the action of, of gratitude and, and how that is good for our well-being. You know, I write a lot of thank you cards and I love writing the card, not just because I know that someone will be grateful for getting a card because we don't get as much things in the mail anymore. But it's also such a beautiful ritual to have when I do it. Often I do it in the morning and I often do it on Fridays because that's kind of my my day of no meetings, etc. And having a cup of tea. So I make it a, a ritual and it's just it's just so nice and um, being grateful for other people and actually expressing it. But also we do something in our family, which I've spoken a lot of times on this podcast called the four G's, which is one thing I'm grateful for, one good thing that happened today, the goal for tomorrow. And then we call it the gram, which is the visual of the day. So if we were to post an Instagram image, what will we post? Oh, that's great. Yeah. And it's, it's something that I've done with the kids. My kids are a little bit older than yours now, but um, I've done that since they been able to to talk and the things that they've been grateful for over the years is just absolutely because the, the imagination for kids are just so so amazing and hearing what they're grateful for it's been such an eye-opener and it's something that we can all do a bit more yeah of, I absolutely think. and I think other, other things that we do which just came to mind I, I love writing gratitude emails to writers that I've read their books and I've just been moved and loved because I feel like you know, people write books and they don't realise what an impact it's had. And I, I know for myself when I've received gratitude, you know, when I've received something from let's say someone's done my for me or the happiness plan, it's so touching and it really makes a difference to my day. And so I've started doing it now with my daughter. So we've written some letters to authors of some of the children's books that she loves and it's just so nice. I think it's a really nice um, way to like teach that appreciation as well. Absolutely. And one thing that we always done with the kids is actually thanking doctors and nurses when we go to, um, you know, if they're unwell, because I think they, you know, as you know, it works so hard and uh, are often, de- you know, dealing with stressful situation and often I think forgotten <laughs> about being grateful for. So we always thank our doctors and nurses. Oh God, especially these days. Yeah, I can only imagine. So let's talk a little bit about you as a doctor turned social entrepreneur with, I know we spoke about briefly with no business experience. You were on a very uh, steep learning curve and I know so many of, of our listeners are in similar situation where they are on uh, perhaps not living their dream life in terms of having on to, and I meet a lot of doctors and a lot of lawyers who kind of study for so long and so hard and then realize they're on the wrong path. So I love 
for you to maybe give some advice, having gone through that, how people can then turn that around to actually live. Because I think life is too mm. short just because you studied, you know, for so many years doesn't mean that you have to continue it. And perhaps like you did, you you now have that science background uh, in your in your business, which is fantastic combination. I think the first thing is uh, recognizing something around the limiting story that you might be telling yourself that this was all a waste of time, you know, oh, I can't, the opportunity cost of changing and starting from the beginning when you've invested so much time into, you know, career number one or something like that. And I think what's become evident to me is, you know, that classic Steve Jobs quote, which is that, you know, all the dots make sense when you look backwards. And I think that it's really true. And sometimes I think you just need to listen deeply and and acknowledge the discordance or the discomfort and follow your curiosity. And I think the big one as well for people is financial. And, you know, how do you, particularly if you're finding yourself in that place when you've got kids and there are dependents, and I think there's creative ways of going around it as well. You know, I literally, I had a few people come up to recently. I have lots of people email me about this because obviously, you know, I was a doctor and now, and then I found the new path. And I think, for me, it wasn't sort of an extreme jump. It was an incremental thing over a number of years. And But I think it's really important to make space in your life if you can so that you've got space to start chipping away at the next thing. And I will actually refer to the book that you told me about. We, I started listening to the, 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 the Wealthy Gardener and I love this story that is told in that book about John Grisham, I think it was the author, how he was in a firm and he was so busy being a lawyer with kids and, you know, and he just committed to one hour a day. And I think in the book, they call it the impact hour. And I think that's just so underestimated how much you can achieve, you know, when you put that impact hour aside to your next pivot. Absolutely. And I think having, starting with a bit of a side hustle and just starting to read about it, research it and just have it as your passion is it's such a great way of starting. And then obviously if, if it feels right, you can then take the jump. Like yeah. And it's so, kind of why it's less, I mean, everyone has their different ways of going about it, but people, you know, I definitely, when I took the leap at some point and I left my, cause I, you know, I, I had, I was, I had employment that was about to begin in January and I was starting another MIM campaign and I started to feel, you know, quite unsettled and I was having trouble sleeping at night. And I was like, what's going on? And then I realized, oh, I, I'm actually trying to do something that is physically impossible. Like there is, this is not possible to do these two things. And that was when I had to make the decision and I let go of psychiatry at that point. And it was scary and there were financial risks, but I still had a little bit of a buffer there that I'd created for myself. So it was a lot better than, you know, jumping when there was no feedback that it was going to be a successful idea. I love that. And one thing that I did was I um, I worked in the beginning went before Kiki K was making any money. I worked in the morning and I worked at night and I just worked on my business during the day. So there's different ways of doing it. And, you know, I, that wasn't my favorite job, serving tables <laughs> in the morning and uh, working at night. But, but it made me be able to pursue my passion, which was to start my own business, which took a little while to obviously get on the ground and uh, off the ground. And as we know, the overnight success doesn't 
happen <laughs> in the first few, first few years. So it's um, so there's so many different ways. So thank you for sharing that because I think that would be really valuable, for, especially for people who have studied. Because I can certainly understand that that's that's a hard decision to make. But I've, I've interviewed quite a few people um, that have done that over the years, and it's um, it's. Uh, you know, it's and you. It's. I don't feel like anything you do, even if you feel like there's so many things you waste your time on. There's learnings and there's silver linings in all of it. And I think you know it comes down to this really beautiful concept in mindfulness and in sort of the ancient teachings as well, which is around impermanence. And the the word sounds a bit kind of abstract, but it's really about the idea that everything is constantly changing. And as Joseph Goldstein, one of the America's really most renowned teachers who's also been part of Mindful May, he says, you know, if you try to hang on to the way that life is constantly changing, you're just going to get rope burn. And so I think we we all have plans and goals based on both our desires, our values, but sometimes also based on what we think things are going to be, what our family ancestry told us we should do, etc. And I think it's a lesson also in really seeing the truth of the fact that everything is changing and we might just have these plans in life, but sometimes you just have to go with the flow and accept, you know what, I can hang on and stay with this career that is not truly fulfilling me or I can choose something different and, and, and you know be surprised and try and create something better for myself. I love how you shared over the weekend that you got burnt out, which you said was a little bit embarrassing considering uh, you are (laughs) in the mindfulness space. But I love how you shared it because it's so relevant for people because people get burnt out so much um, in this kind of environment and there's so much more than just hard work now. There's, you know, with all the things that's happening in the world. So can you tell us a little bit about that experience and how you kind of turn that into a positive or a silver lining? So the context of that, yeah, it was really a very kind of, I had a lot of shame around it, felt very embarrassed and somehow felt like I'd really failed because I was walking my talk, you know, I was doing the meditation, but what happened, you know? Um, But the context was that was actually the year that I left my career in psychiatry and dived into Mindful May full time. And it was the year that I really, you know, there was some financial risk and there was a bit of anxiety because I I, I needed to make a living for myself suddenly. And putting myself fully into the campaign and having a team for the first time, it, it, it kind of exploded that year. And we just weren't prepared for the growth that happened. And I got kind of steamrolled in the process. Um, I was still really new at all of it. From a business perspective, I had no idea. And so there was just this accelerated learning. And I think because by nature, I'm someone that, you know, likes to cross my T's and dot my I's is slightly perfectionistic. I just, you know, I couldn't let go of anything. It all had to be done the right way. And it just steamrolled me. And um, in the end, yeah, I came out and was not very good and um, felt very kind of humiliated. But what I realized afterwards is that again, this piece around self-compassion and kindness, like give yourself a damn break, girl. You know, like you've never done anything related to business. You've jumped out of this career in psychiatry. This thing's gone crazy and exploded unexpectedly and you're kind of in it and it's got this engine. And so what there were two realizations. Number one, give yourself a break because, you know, you were trying to do your best. Number two, meditation does not compensate for a life and decision-making that is kind of not balanced. And, and um, 
but I did have a lot of compassion for myself because I really, I was trying to kind of, you know, not spend too much money so that it was all safe. And it was, you know, it was juggling a lot. And, um, in retrospect, I would have taken more financial risk to get more help to, so then I wouldn't have had to be such a workhorse and then I wouldn't have burnt out. But these are the things you learn down the track. So, And the other thing that happened that was really good is that one of my highest values is integrity. I just find that is so important. And so for me it was like, okay, how do I go back to this community, email list like thousands of people around the world, and kind of own this and integrate this and and it really was a great teaching and I just shared honestly about it and people were really yeah just understanding and I think people really respected that I could share that honest honestly how I was feeling yeah yeah absolutely and I think it's it's such a good point because you know 10 meditation if you do you know if you work yourself to the ground 10 minute meditation is not going to help and it's the message around really looking at life in a holistic way and and it was learning the hard way. You know, I think that there's this thing around money I'm very curious and interested about because I don't think it's spoken about particularly amongst females directly enough. But, you know, there is really this very primitive thing that happens around money to survive and and when you're doing something that's also like got a fundraising aspect it's it's a, it's a juggle and there's there's a huge amount of learning in business when you've never done anything before oh this has been so so good i want to finish up with a few quick questions but before we do i would love for you to share what you think for people who are not living their dream life right now what to do to change that i think a, a few key things that come to mind straight away are number one get help seek people out, write an email to someone that inspires you, ask them out for coffee, ask them if you can pay them for an hour of their time just to pick their brain, you know, if it's because sometimes lunch isn't, you know, people are so busy, really be bold and an outreach to people and find a coach, you know, get the help that you need because it's really easy to be stuck in your own limited beliefs and stories and stuckness. So get out of the stuckness and take proactive action to outreach to people. Couldn't agree more. I talk about that often, so it's really amazing. Thank you. I'm such an avid reader and I found out over the weekend that you are as well. (laughs) So I'm always interested to know, do you have a favorite book and why? This question makes me anxious (laughs) because I'm like scrolling through my Kindle library in my head and I'm like, oh my God, what's the book? What's the book? Okay. Two came to mind, so I'll just share them. Kelly McGonigal, The Upside of Stress, was a phenomenal book, which even though I had studied the brain and the stress response and what have you, what I learned in her book blew my mind and it's really science-based and it's all about how the mindset that you have in relation to stress actually impacts the way upon which stress affects your body and your mind. It's a must-read and all of her books, actually. She was um, part of Mindful May last year as well. I love her. Uh, so that one. And the other one that's more of a kind of soulful book is The One Life We're Given by Mark Nepo, who's a poet and kind of spiritual seeker. Fantastic. Thanks. We'll link to all to those two books. Thank you so much for sharing. On the weekend, we talked a little bit about my morning routine, uh, but I'd love to hear about your morning routine. <laughs> I'm in a bit of a transitional point with my morning routine because my my youngest has just started sleeping a little bit better at night. So prior to that, my morning routine has been kind of 
get up to the screaming of my baby who's, you know, woken up a few times through the night and um, kind of get to it. And meditation for me has actually been moved to the middle of my day and the end of my day because the morning was just not workable at all um, because I decided that having read Matthew Walker, is it, his book on sleep and learning how important sleep is, I was not willing to sacrifice sleep to get up early and meditate in the morning. So I did it in the in, yeah in midday and the end of the day. So right now my morning routine involves getting up, trying to go and do some exercise um, and then basically coming home and getting the kids quickly to school and all the rest of that. And then I, so I find that my more self-care routine time has moved to the middle of the day when my kids are, A, one's asleep, the other one's at school, and um, I get to do some meditation and kind of reflection. Yeah, fantastic. And that's a really good point because people say, how do you manage my morning routine? Because I get up really, I know, really I would, early. I said to you, is there a five or a four in the front of the alarm? <laughs> And, um, but you know, I actually wake up naturally now because it's my routine and I I love my morning routine so much that the nighttime is not as important to me. So I'll go to bed early. So, but I think it's so important because we are all in different stages of life. And especially if you have young kids, uh, that was very different uh, back then. So I think that was really good that you shared that because sleep is so important, more important than a morning routine. So if you get a good sleep, it doesn't matter when you have your morning routine and it doesn't matter where. (laughs) I like to call it my 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 midday routine. (laughs) Yeah. Perfect. I love it. I love it. So yeah, I should maybe just talk about routines, not morning routines. In, in, but in but the I future. must say there is something when you told me about your routine, I did think, okay, aspiring. I'm, I'm aspiring because I, I do actually think there is something quite unique and special about those early morning hours when the whole world is asleep. I do. I really do. And I've been there. I have had times in my life when I've been up at the, you know, in those early hours and it's somehow, yeah, it's, it's very special. I would love to know if you have a favorite Kiki K product or a favorite stationary product. I'm a devotee to the gratitude journal. Fantastic. Well, this has been so amazing. The last question is if you could give yourself one piece of advice to your younger self, say, you know, late teens, what would that advice be like? I was going to say, chill out. It'll all be okay. (laughs) But another piece of advice would be, Take more more healthy risks, I think. I was a little bit of an obedient teen, so <laughs> take more measured risks and and see what unfolds. It's okay to leap into the unknown. Yeah, fantastic. And I, when I have that question to myself, I always say dream bigger because it's only you who put the limits uh, on yourself and uh, depending on where you grew up and how you grew up and what your you know your environment is like, when I look at those big dreamers, I'm like, why not me? I could do that as well. So, um, yeah, I think. And, more yeah. And actually one more thing, having come from the arena of, you know, psychotherapy and the mind and psych- psychology and psychiatry, I would say that getting someone like a therapist or a coach or someone is actually so valuable because exactly by what you said, we're often so limited by our own stories and it's like we're fish in our own water. We don't see the water. We don't see these stories that are holding us back. And it, it, it does take other people to sort of challenge you on on your thinking and help you unlock the prisons that you've created for yourself in what you don't even realise are stories that are not true but are limiting you. So I, I really think that it's so valuable to have someone external, whether it's a therapist or coach, to help kind of challenge you. Yeah, 
Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. That is the most perfect way to end this super inspiring uh, conversation. Thank you so very much for first taking your time. I know it was very kind of last minute because I really wanted to get you on as soon as possible to inspire as many people as possible to join your amazing, not just for themselves, but also what you are doing in terms of, uh, of giving water access to people around the world. So thank you so much. It's been so inspiring and I am definitely going to be in Mindful in May and I can't wait to hear all the interviews and do all the meditations. And Thank you so much. And I also just wanted to, yeah, share it back to you and say it was such a pleasure meeting you and you've been a real inspiring figure in in my mind as well so yeah thank you and I I look forward to so many more conversations offline and online (laughs) (laughs) me too thank you so much Wow, Elise is such a wonderful inspiration and I really hope you found as many pieces of wisdom in this episode as I did I'm such a lover of meditation and I truly feel the benefits from it in my life every single day I have also read Elise's books, The Happiness Plan, multiple times, and I encourage everyone to read it if you haven't already. And don't forget, Mindful in May is also coming up. I'll be joining, so be sure to check out our show notes for how you can sign up and join Elise this May as well. You will also find links to some helpful products that we have created at Kiki K to help you develop your own practices around gratitude, kindness, and mindfulness as well. If you love this episode and have been inspired to make any positive changes after hearing it, I would love you to join my private Facebook group, Your Dream Life Podcast, so you can share and learn with a group of like-minded listeners. We have so many inspiring guests lined up in the coming months, so please remember to subscribe so you don't miss any, and don't forget to tell us what you thought by leaving us a review. I love hearing from you, and I'm so grateful for all the comments, so thank you. I also do talk a little bit about habits. So if you want to join my habit challenge, just go to yourdreamlifestartshere.com. And if you want to see more what's happening in my world, you can always follow me on Instagram at Christina Kiki K. Thanks for listening. And until next time, dream big.